Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vicavage, and this is a monthly podcast where I go in depth with one author releasing their debut book. If you like what you hear, check out more interviews and book recommendations at daybeautiful.net. If you've been following along, I've been doing a lot more podcasting in March and April due to COVID-19. I've been doing a series called The Digital Book Tour, where authors were able to read from and then discuss their debut book. I'm so grateful for all the authors who appeared on the Digital Book Tour. We still have a few more episodes coming out that are going to be labeled the Digital Book Tour, but to make things easier, this episode, which was technically a Digital Book Tour episode, is just going to be numbered five, and from now on, we're just going to number the podcast episodes to make it easier for everyone. The Digital Book Tour was meant to represent a very specific time, and though COVID-19 and social distancing is going to continue... I feel we're just in it to win it now, and every podcast will get a number, and it'll just be way more streamlined when you go to the feed. Today's guest holds a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, where her research focused in 20th and 21st century American fiction, film, and television. Her debut book, Take Me Apart, is out now via MCD Books. Her name is Sarah Sliger. Hey, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. How are you doing? Hi, Adam. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. I love um, the Day Beautiful Project and all of the authors you highlight. Everything is going pretty um, okay here. I mean, all things considered. I'm in Los Angeles, so it is um, a big city. So there are, are a lot of um, cases of COVID and everything. Um, and you know, there's, yeah, so there's some, some stress there, but I think pretty well situated right now. And I feel um, really lucky. So let's just talk about your schooling briefly, real fast. Did you do a traditional MFA in creative writing and then go on to a a doctorate program? No. um, Yeah. So actually my academic career for a really long time was very separate from my creative writing. I got a BA in English and French, I got a master's in history, and then I went to um, do a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania for English literature. And I mostly worked on American literature from the mid 20th century, uh, as well as as well as um, film and television. So um, it actually, yeah, for a long time was pretty separate. I was kind of writing um, in my free time and I, you know, have been writing for a really long time as kind of my side project. And it was only actually once I signed with my agent that I even told, you know, anybody really in my life that I (laughs) did creative writing at all. Um, And since then, it's been really amazing because there's been this kind of um, really organic connection that has arisen um, between the two. I think that they were connected in my head for a long time. Obviously, like the analysis of literature and the creation of literature are kind of um, intricately connected anyway. But um, it was only sort of like, yeah, after my third year of my, my third or fourth year of my PhD was when I signed with my agent. And it was after that that I started also teaching creative writing and um Kind of building out that um, that portion of my of my pedagogy. So you're really all over the place. So take me apart. It was a secret for a really long time. Then. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, well, interesting story. I actually signed with my agent on the basis of a different book that I had written. So I started working on Take Me Apart um, shortly after I signed with her because we sort of had, we sort of came to this agreement that like their, um, the other book was cool, but I kind of wanted to take um, my career and everything in a slightly like different direction. The um, the previous book had been a romance novel, which is a genre I have huge respect for and I really enjoyed writing it. Um, but then it also, it's a genre that um, it has a lot of very um, particular constraints, both in the industry and in the form. And I was sort of realizing, I hadn't really thought about like, oh, my career, what kinds of books I would necessarily want to write long-term. And so I ended up, um, going into kind of this like literary suspense um, field is maybe the wrong word, but this, this genre, um, because I felt like that was, um, it had some of like the flexibility and room for experimentation and growth that I, that I really wanted. So I actually started working on the book after I signed with her, which is a very unusual, mm-hmm. um, an, an unusual situation these days. Then you mentioned Take Me Apart is in that literary suspense genre. Um, in your own words, what is Take Me Apart about? Take Me Apart is about an archivist who becomes obsessed with uncovering the truth behind a famous photographer's death 24 years earlier. And so it is connected in a lot of ways to some of my research um, because it's really about this question of like, what kinds of papers and evidence are left behind after we die and what um, what stories can people kind of tell about us um, based on those objects. So it goes back and forth between um, the 1980s when, and those sections are told sort of through the photographer's archival documents, um, journal entries, medical records, uh, even some receipts. And then, um, and then there's also a story in the present day, which is about the archivist and her kind of deepening obsession um, with this photographer's life. And the part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to give writers the chance to read from their work, which they would have read on their tour. Uh, what would you be reading for us today? I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter two, uh, which is from Kate's perspective. The book goes back and forth between Kate, who's the sort of like present day narrator and um, Miranda Brown's documents. Um, And this is when Kate has been hired as um, an archivist to put together a collection of Miranda's materials for auction. She arrives at this, um, this house of this very famous person that she, as you'll see, doesn't know that much about. Chapter two. The house where Miranda Brand lived and died was, on the outside, unremarkable. It was perched on the crown of the hill like a dollop of mayonnaise on the bald curve of a hard-boiled egg. The color might have been beautiful once, but the wind coming off the ocean had beaten the paint to a drab gray, the same shade as the sky, so that in some places it was hard to see where the fog stopped and the building began. Two overgrown lemon trees spanned across the front, their tallest branches just brushing the windows of a third floor. It could have been any house on any hill in a coastal town, east coast or west, and yet as soon as Kate saw it, her heart gave a strange, swift beat. Maybe it was just exertion. 
In a terse, unpunctuated email a few days earlier, Theo Brand had given her directions to the house via a walking path from town, as well as the locks, walking path is in quotes, as well as the locks combination for a gate to the property. Kay had imagined an easy stroll, but instead she, found, she had found herself climbing a steep tangled furrow through redwoods until sweat bloomed between her shoulder blades. As for the gate, the lock was so rusty that she had spent five minutes scraping it with a bobby pin just to get it open. Despite the delay, she was 15 minutes early, too early to knock. She stood at the edge of the clearing, eyeing the house and huddling into herself to stay warm. It was colder here than she had expected, the morning air as wet and icy as a dead fish, and all the little hairs on her arms were standing up. Dinner last night had been weird, her aunt and uncle tossing out information on everything from area hikes to the guest room's to the guest room toilet's quirks to the local beach's rules, while Kate chewed an overcooked steak and tried not to worry about the new job. Kate had dismissed her aunt's concerns in the car, but the truth was she had spoken to her new boss only once before, a brisk 30-minute phone interview during which he had shared almost nothing about himself. Afterwards, through Google, she learned he had gone to Harvard, bounced between a few successful internet startups, and now ran some computer-related consulting business, which had gotten him featured on an important 35 under 35 list for the tech industry. His name came up in a few magazine articles and, of course, in his father's obituary from six months ago, but the press coverage was bland and uninformative. In interviews, he declined to comment on anything unrelated to work. The only personal information Kate found was a line item in a Bay Area gossip column about his divorce last year. Not a single article where he spoke about his mother. Kate had been on the wrong side of enough news reports over the past year to understand the desire for privacy. On the other hand, she had taken this job assuming she would learn more about him at some point. She had figured they would talk again before she moved all the way across the country or that he would send detailed instructions about what exactly the work would entail. She had meant to do a deeper dive into the tech blog. Now, as she stared at the house, she realized that she had gotten so distracted by the logistics of moving that she had done the unimaginable. She had stopped researching. The critical moment was here and she had run out of time. This was it. This was all she knew. She checked her watch, 13 minutes now. Across the brittle brown loop of the lawn, there was a notch in the tree line. She could at least walk over there and try to get a glimpse of the ocean. With another glance at the silent house, she hitched her tote bag up on her shoulder and started across the lawn. In the backyard, the slopes spilled down into the edge of the woods and below that, a cliff. No luck on the view, even though the break in the tree, even through the break in the trees, the fog blanked out whatever lay beyond, leaving the clearing swaddled in a gray cocoon of mist. Far down the incline was a glint of metal. Her stomach twisted. The fence she had come through must encircle the entire house. When she had closed the gate and rejammed the lock, she had trapped herself inside. What are you doing? A voice said from right behind her. Kate started, almost losing her footing. When she turned, she saw a man standing about 10 feet away between her and the house. Tall, dark-haired, olive-skinned, a lean frame. His feet were spread wide, defensive, and his hands were in his pocket. There was an intense, uh, <laughs> brand. There was an intensity to him that the images online hadn't captured. He was more vital, less quaffed. Her elbow clamped her tote bag to her side. Fear, excitement, something sharp and glowing slipped through her veins. She shouldn't have had that second coffee. I'm Kate, she blurted out, your archivist. She didn't know why she said your. I figured, I guess he missed the front door. She swallowed, I wanted to see the view. He looked at the opaque sky and raised an eyebrow. 
When Kate flushed, he said, you know, I prosecute trespassers. He couldn't be serious. And yet his voice was cool and his eyes were steady. The laughter died in her throat. She cast her mind back to their email. Had she gotten the start date wrong? No, she would never have messed that up. She was good with details. I know I'm a little early, she said haltingly, but I think she waited for him to jump in and correct himself. He didn't. She could barely conceal her disbelief as she asked, are you saying I should go back around front? Are you saying I should go back around front? Of course not. Then as she was beginning to relax, he added, you should enjoy it a little longer. Enjoy what? The thrill, he nodded in her direction. That's where she died. Shot herself right where you're standing. Kate looked down at the sparse matted grass. Go ahead, get down on the ground, he said pleasantly. See what it feels like. Get the full experience. The one thing I really did love about your book was those archival pieces of like, newspapers and like medical rec- records. Was that always how you envisioned this particular book being formatted? Yeah, definitely. Um, I always wanted it to reconstruct that kind of uh, feeling for the reader of like rifling through papers. Um, I wanted it to have that kind of almost collage-like feel at moments. I have done a lot of archival research in my academic work, and so I had kind of become um, really familiar with the excitement as well as the sort of like tedium that it involves. And I wanted to um, be able to kind of like put the reader into that position. And I also was interested in sort of playing with the um, the connections between like a kind of like archival detective work and then the sort of actual detective work of, um, of try or actual amateur detective work of uh, trying to solve a mystery. So that was always going to be part of it. Um, I will say in earlier drafts, I had this, uh, <laughs> more kind of experimental vision that it would somehow like rely solely on like deciphering pretty like encoded documents. So it would be more like receipts and medical records and some things that were very opaque. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I really want to like have this feeling of boredom of the archives. And I was sort of like, oh, actually, I don't want the reader to be bored. So at the beginning, it was like a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit more experimental um, in terms of the types of material I used. But I think that, um, you know, the end result gives kind of that feeling of archival work um, in a way that also tells a story more effectively, hopefully. I think that, like we were talking, it's literary suspense, you know, it's, 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 how, how do I bring this up? So like, you know, you walk into a bookstore, there's, like, thrillers, and then there's fiction. And they're two separate genres to booksellers and customers. But for writers, I feel like that's not necessarily the case. Do you feel your book... Do you feel it fits... If, if you had to put it into a pigeonhole, do you feel it's a more of a literary work that happens to be suspenseful? Or is it a suspenseful novel? The suspense. Mm, you know... I think that's a good question. I don't know that I have a answer for like if I had to choose one because I feel like it's a bit of um that's a bit of like a subjective judgment of the book. So I don't know if there's one that you feel it falls more into. I don't. I would be interested in knowing. See, I if I was pitching it, 
I would to like a friend, I would say, oh, it's a thriller, but it's really literary, whatever that means. That's just mm-hmm. how I would say it because, especially if they liked thrillers. But I, the, I bring this up because I was on Goodreads, just like reading. Oh, like, uh, yeah. And, yeah. And like, and I, and I, I had a suspicion. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't think about it until 20 minutes before I called you that people would even be like, oh, this isn't the mystery I was looking for. Or this was more than I expected and like good or bad or, or neutral or whatever. And it's just funny to me. I don't think about books that way, but I, I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. I, I think it is important to, um, yeah, definitely say that it is a thriller. Um, we've pitched it as a thriller, but it's like a kind of, it's definitely a more sort of like expansive version of that definition, one that kind of encompasses like, you know, I think it falls in sort of the mystery, thriller, and crime uh, genre, but there is like um, a certain kind of um, of thriller that has a particular type of pace and characterization, and I I understand that some readers come to the book thinking that it is a more narrow definition of a thriller, um, and maybe you know might be surprised in a good way, might be disappointed. Um, there, yeah, there are different yeah. reactions I can imagine having. Well, I think that's that's what excites me about literature and the book world now is that you know this book and and then it reminds me a lot even though they're completely different um, about Emma Eisenberg's Third Rainbow Girl where you could pitch that as true crime but it's not really true crime but it gets yeah yeah yeah, uh, I love Emma's book so much and that's really a book that is kind of taking the genres um, really like head-on and really confronting the difficulty of creating um or of uh, categorizing um, stories in actuality. And so she's sort of challenging a lot of the conventions of true crime, um, a lot of the conventions of memoir. Um, yeah, she does a great job with that. So I'm very flattered to uh, to be talked about in connection with her. Yeah, I think your book is just, it's a, I know like everything, you, writers don't write to sell books, you write because it's a passion, but this genreless world we've been entering and maybe have fully entered it's just it's good it's i think it's a great thing because now i can convince my mother who only reads mary higgins clark to pick up this book as opposed to maybe yeah you know i just so i think that's good i think you're reaching new readers that you wouldn't have reached not you but writers are reaching new readers that they wouldn't have reached five ten years ago Yeah, and you know, I think that um, I probably come at it from a slightly different angle than a lot of um, a lot of authors of literary fiction, because I actually was really interested in becoming like a very uh, genre writer, you know, like that book that I originally wrote was romance, I have a lot of respect for genre fiction. And I do think, you know, what makes me really excited about the ways in which cross genre work is being like, really celebrated and pushed forward now is that I think historically a lot of genre fiction um, has been associated with various marginalized groups. Um, For example, romance is like very associated with like a female readership. There are a lot of kind of class um, issues and nuances built into um, the way that books, that genre books historically have been marketed and presented, the kind of idea of like highbrow versus lowbrow. And so I hope that the cross genre, um, you know, movement is is one that's like gearing more towards inclusivity 
ultimately, like, I, you know, I wrote the kind of book that I would want to read, which I think is what most writers do. And, you know, you just kind of like had faith that somebody else yeah. would want to read it as well, hopefully. And then you mentioned traditional thrillers have this have this pace to it that's familiar to readers. What was figuring out Take Me Apart's pace like for you? Um, the pace of it was really tricky. Um, the structure of it was very tricky because I did not uh, really outline it ahead of time, which I, you know later came to regret because I ended up doing a bunch like I'm talking like seven like full right rewrites of the book start to finish like complete rewrites with like different endings everything so it really was a lot of work doing that um the pace was difficult to kind of figure out as you know through that process um but I think that the the difficult thing about pacing it was mostly that there are these two narratives that weave in and out. There's Miranda, the photographer's narrative, and there's Kate, the present-day narrator's um, narrative. And it's really difficult. Um, we know, you know, when you're writing like a thriller um, or any kind of plot-driven um, text or just any book that like you want to have that kind of like page-turny feel, you have to put a lot of thought into like, well, what's the like, you know, the climax of like particular, of, well, of the overall book and then of particular scenes or sections and trying to put that together so that readers would like be able to finish one narrator's section feeling excited to read the next, the next section by that narrator, but also not disappointed to get to like another section by the other narrator. Um, like trying to basically do these two sets of like um, rising and falling action within the larger book that was that was really the hardest thing about pacing it um, and was very very challenging um, and I, you know I think there are definitely readers who prefer one narrator to the other and um, feel like reading one um, they, they're like oh you know I loved like Miranda sections and disliked Kate. So we're like, I loved Kate sections, but like I couldn't get into Miranda's. I think that's like a natural response, but I think like as a writer, just trying to make sure that they're like evenly balanced enough that like a reader who can connect to both characters can have the feeling of it being like a cohesive book. That, that was a challenge for pacing it. Yeah, so obviously a cohesive narration. You need both to create the whole. Did you try to keep their paces together, or would you let one get ahead of the other um, when you were writing? Mm, so I think, um, yeah, the other, I guess, in terms of one getting ahead of the other, you know, it, it was important to make sure that, um, how would I say this that like the reader um doesn't feel like cheated by not having the correct information so trying to figure out how to present um information to the reader from like miranda's documents at the same time or around the same time as kate has it um or there are some there are moments where like the reader gets further into miranda's diary than kate does um that I guess that that would be the closest thing I would say to like maybe one getting in front of the other um, in terms of like, I guess, just like the actual pace of like the writing 
I think, yeah, there are moments where um, one narrative seems to have like more urgency over the other, um, which is just kind of that like weaving back and forth um, that I described. But yeah, but certainly like, I guess I was really trying to think about, okay, well, like what does Kate know in this instance? What does Miranda know in this instance? And then what does the reader know? And trying to balance all of those um, pretty carefully. What other aspects of figuring out this book proved tricky for you outside of like that pace and that emergency between the uh, Kate's reactions to the archives? Yeah, honestly, I mean the the pace and structure mm-hmm. were probably like kind of the most consistently difficult things just because of this you know format that I chose where there are, um, you're kind of like encountering these archival documents. But I also, it took me a long time to find Kate's voice. Um, Miranda's a photographer and her documents were always like pretty consistent. Like I always kind of knew what she would sound like that came more naturally to me. But um, because Kate is like a more reserved person, character, narrator, and you're not having this like sort of first person. I mean, she's not the narrator, she's like a close third person, but um, so you're not having this like kind of, because Miranda's sections are told through like letters and diaries, like there's this uh, kind of, um, she's just kind of like throws it all on the page, which is not Kate's character. And so it was just hard to get to um, understand and build that character in a way that um, made that like brought out um, her, yeah, that brought that brought out her character. Like it's difficult to write a reserved character in close third, um, while also letting the reader in enough to uh, to connect with the to connect with the character, which was like important. Like you know, Kate's voice had to be as strong as Miranda's for the book to work. I'm sure again, I'm sure there are people who will read the book who will say that it's not and vice versa. Like I, that's totally, you know, at that point of like reader interpretation, but I feel like that the voices are equally strong and compelling and um, getting to that point was difficult. I felt reading it that I loved both equally and just when I thought I was getting tired of archival documents it switched and then i by the time i was done with the other perspective i was like okay let's get some more documents like i feel like you very well struck the balance between what you needed to do and i feel like what you were wanting to do that's great thank you i also have to really give credit here to my editor Mm -hmm. um, daphne durham at mcd who's like such a dream to work with and really you know by the time that she bought the book I had been through it so many times that I had really lost sight of like what was essential and like what readers would feel or know at specific moments. I just like hadn't, I, I just like needed some really intensive um, work to like wrap my brain around that again and like get that fresh set of eyes. And she just did an amazing, an amazing job um, with the book. So mm-hmm. I really have to give her a lot of credit. I love when editors get credit. I feel yeah, like, you know. I mean, she's like amazing. I mean, yeah, I, I, I love Daphne so much, and I just, mm-hmm. the book would not be the way that it is at all if she hadn't, like, really believed in it and worked super hard on it, so. I feel like 
a lot of younger people who want to become writers think it's like the writer is in the rowboat. And that's true for a very long time. It's just you going against the current. But then you get to a ship and you're the captain and you have a crew working for you. And like, there's so many different pieces involved in making a book as good as it possibly can be. It's true. Yeah, there's a lot of different. Um, yeah, there's like I like that metaphor. Um, there's like it's almost it's like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but it's like a very well run, you know, kitchen. Ideally, with lots of like like a pastry chef and like two chefs who are really good at a certain thing. And um, I think, uh, yeah, I like that metaphor a lot. I also think that you know the writer is in the rowboat. A good editor, um, based on my experience with Daphne, you know, will also say, you know, will also like trust the writer's vision. So, you know, Daphne has always said from the beginning, like, oh, if there's something that I disagree with that you feel strongly about, you know, you just tell me why you feel strongly about it. And like, that's fine. Like, I just need sometimes need to understand. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I guess it's important to have like an editor who like, you know, work, who understands your vision and who you trust a lot. Like there were, I can't really think of any examples of things, of like comments that she made that I like really disagreed with, you know, there's, there wasn't some like big conflagration where I was like, why would you want to, you know, change that? It was always like confirming an instinct that mm-hmm. I already had. You started with the romance book and then this book you mentioned was you wrote what you wanted to read, You want what you want to write. What interests you in literature now? I know you said, like, Third Rainbow Girl, something that was good, but, like, what do you what do you look for when you're picking up books? Oh, great question. Um, I really look for a wide variety of things. I mean, I read really widely across genres. Um, I... I, I'm trying to think if there's like one unifying thing that would like um, pull, pull all the books I like together, but I'm not sure there is because I think um, I do re- read Willie. Uh, sorry, I read really widely. I um, I read a lot of contemporary literary fiction. I still read romance. I obviously read a lot of mystery, thriller. Um, I would like to read more sci-fi. I was on like a kind of sci-fi for a while and then I sort of gotten off that so um I uh I read I haven't I also was likewise on like a narrative nonfiction um then for a while and sort of gotten off that so I read what really widely um I like to you know if a book is recommended to me by somebody I trust that's always obviously like the best thing but I think that um if I like am opening a book, knowing very little about it, I just like to have a sense of like of energy behind it. I do like, um, you know, to have a really like strong plot um, and a strong sort of like sense of pace and character, which doesn't mean that it has to be like, you know, an explosion every like five or 10 pages or whatever. But because I think there's, there's some like beautiful quiet books that also have like that kind of tension um tension in them but you know tension is I think well I don't know if in physics it's a form of energy but I think of it as a form of energy when you're talking about literature um so I think there's yeah that I think that's really what um often pushes me forward also like yeah a strong sense of character I think is really important um 
I love the feeling that you're like, you know, learning more about human beings when you read. What books captured that tension best for you? And I don't know that this is, I'm, best is a, a hard thing to answer. So just off the top of your head, what books had good tension for you? Mm, um, just in general, ever. Yeah. Well, when I was talking about quiet books that have great tension, I was thinking of Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, which is probably like one of my top favorite books ever published. Um, and I just think that book is like so masterful at putting you inside, um, just like inside the head of the characters and in this situation, this really evocative um, place and mood. Um, I guess I would also say like a strong kind of like atmosphere I also really like, like I like there to be um, a kind of like a, a sense of place is really, um, is really fun for me. So I think there's that um, in that book. Um, more recently, I really loved Angie Kim's debut, Miracle Creek, last year. I felt like that had some really, like, a great balance of, like we were talking about earlier, the sort of, like, literary and suspense um, elements. I read Alexis Shaikin's St. X recently, and I similarly felt like it had that, the kind of, like, literary and suspense elements and also, like, a wonderful sense of place. Um, my friend Hilary Leichter's book, Temporary, is, like, totally on the other end of the spectrum because it's this, like, surrealist, um, comedic romp, but, like, it has such a strong sense of itself and is so fun and, um, and energetic that that was just, like, yeah, that was great. Um, I read Kylie Reed's debut recently, which I also, um, just felt like it had this lovely, like, balance of like humor and um I don't I'm like trying not to use the word tension again but there is such like if that's such a book that's about like yeah um that's it's like about the tension between these two women and the kind of overall societal tensions and just like unpacking um yeah unpacking the kind of um these kind of like larger political issues about racism and socioeconomic inequality and in um in a way that also is like it was real page turner yeah those are all terrific books um a lot of them i i interviewed angie last year and this this literary thriller is just something that never really caught my eye but the more and more i read i'm like maybe i sh i have to like go back and like catalog all these books that i just missed because i thought i wouldn't like it because i probably will like it yeah i mean i i do think that there's just so many um crime and mystery and thriller books like it's just such a big genre right now that there are i think books for everybody in the genre for sure that um that people can connect to and like you said, um, you know, you said earlier that it was like a great opportunity for you to recommend books to your mom. And um, my dad similarly will like mostly read, um, well, as he reads a lot of nonfiction, um, but he also reads a lot of like thrillers. I mean, he reads a lot of like James Patterson and like Clive Cussler. Um, and, you know, I, which I kind of think of because my dad reads them so much, I sort of think of them as like dad books, which is like maybe not fair. I haven't read them. But, um, yeah, and so it's, like, you know, it's nice to be able to, like, connect with um, 
connect with your parents or with people you know who have generally different reading tastes over a book that you're coming at from different angles. It's, it's a fun experience. Yeah, definitely. I, that's what I think literature can do. It's just you can connect with it in so many different ways with so many different people. And that's one thing I've learned to appreciate a lot over the past few years. Yeah, definitely. I lo- And I love like seeing, um, you know, people's reactions to books that, um, oh, yeah, one book I should have mentioned earlier, because this is one of the books I like most love talking about with people um, is Severance by Ling Ma, which is also very timely right now. Uh, but I read it before it felt uh, timely in terms of the pandemic. It felt timely in a lot of other ways. And um, that book just had like this wonderful mixture of genres and this really electric kind of tension that ran through it um and that book is like I just I can lay I've had like 40 minute long conversations with friends about the ending of the book about like interpreting different like scenes in it and I feel like it's just such a um I mean I guess I teach literature so I also you know make a living having those discussions with students so I guess it's like not surprising that I um find them so enjoyable but I just really do love seeing how people's um interpretations of text differ based on what um yeah what their Mm -hmm. perspective is that they're bringing to reading it thank you so much to sarah slager for coming on the podcast today and talking about her book take me apart she also appeared on our discovering debuts zoom panel i did a few weeks ago, which will eventually be up on YouTube. So if you want to hear more from her and other authors like Miranda Popke and Sierra Crane Murdoch, that will be an hour-long conversation on YouTube eventually. It takes forever to upload. You can find Sarah on the web at sarahsliger.com. She's on Twitter at sarahxsliger and on Instagram at sarahsliger. I'll link all of those in the show notes. As always, you can find Day Beautiful on the internet at daybeautiful.net, on all of the social media at daybeautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.